Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you have had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who are the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamon, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. These are some, um, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin. So they ate the food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have those, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give a person a white stone um, with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let me pray before Johnny comes to speak. Uh, dear Father, thank you so much that um, we can gather here as a church and hear your word preached freely. And thank you for Johnny and his preparation. And I pray that you would um, ready our hearts, soften it, that we may be teachable, um, and that you um, would speak to us um, so that we may live for your glory. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to, uh, great to be together. I wonder what you, what you see when you uh, look at the church, what you feel when you look at the church. 
might be a whole load of positive things. It could be thankfulness and appreciation and you're inspired and you feel love and you're encouraged and you're hopeful. Or maybe mixed in there's some slightly more negative things. Pain and heartache and disappointment and frustration and anger and bitterness and regret and maybe like it's full of a load of hypocrites. It's become popular uh, over time to talk about loving Jesus but not the church. I think Gandhi was one of the first to say it. He, he, he said uh, that he, he liked Christ but didn't like Christians. Uh, and you can basically find no end of, of celebs who say similar sorts of things uh, and quotes from them saying something similar. In fact, it's become increasingly common even for Christians to say that kind of thing. To claim to be Christians and yet to hate the church and to be done with it. The number of people who I meet around Brum and about uh, our local community, and you talk to them and they're like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, and, and you ask them about church, and they're like, no, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's a very different matter. In fact, research in America uh, found a couple of years ago that 10% of the American population are in that camp where they would call themselves Christians, have a living relationship with Jesus, and yet church is just not a thing for them. It's a distant reality. And, you know, when, when you hear some people's stories, when I hear some people's stories... I can't blame them for ending in that place. But what are we to make of church? And what does Jesus think about the church? Last week, we got this really good look, didn't we? If you're with us, Revelation 1, at Jesus. We saw this vision of the risen and reigning Jesus. And this week, we get a really good look at the church. But we see the church from Jesus' perspective. And so we see what Jesus thinks and what he feels when he looks at his church And basically we do it through reading someone else's mail. Um, In fact, a lot of people's mail. So um, Becky read for us the first three of seven little letters, uh, like mini letters to churches. And I'm kind of preaching on all seven of them, but we'd have been here till tomorrow if she'd read them all. So we just read the first three. Uh, And they're in in Revelation chapters two and three. If if you haven't got it, get it open in a scripture journal or or in your Bible. Uh, and, And these letters are addressed from Jesus to these specific churches in first century Turkey and these various towns, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Sardis, etc. And these, these mini letters are in the middle of this, remember we've seen that the whole of the book of Revelation is a big letter, this general letter that is sent to the church uh, at large in the world that's to be circulated around the, the church all over the place and all the way through history. It's as if, say I wanted to write a letter to the gate church, uh, and so I, I write this letter to you as, as a whole, but I take a few sentences here and there to... Um, address particular individuals or, or, or particular households um, in, as in the middle of that letter. Of course, when I'm doing that, I, I'm aware and I assume that everyone is going to read that letter. Everyone's going to take note of what is being said to those particular individuals. And it's also a message to them in some, in some ways. And yet that particular part is addressed to those particular people in that situation. Actually, we should pay attention to these letters because it turns out, after all, it is our mail. It's as if we've been copied into the email. It's addressed to these seven churches, and we're, we're, we're CC'd in. See, remember the, the symbolic seven number that we've looked at a bit? That, that's representing the universal church. So there's that idea. These seven churches are representing the universal church. But actually, Becky read it three times. It's repeated at the end of every letter. Look at verse uh, 7 of chapter 2. Exactly these words in every letter. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. This is what the Spirit says to the churches. This message isn't just for an individual church in one time and one place, but this is for the whole church 
across the whole world and through all of history. As we dig into these letters, we just need to see that there is um, a heavily stylized structure that they, they have. And, and, and we just need to log that because it opens up the meaning to us. You might have heard it as, as Becky read them through. They flow through a similar pattern. It's actually a sevenfold pattern within the letters themselves as well. Seven things. Basically, they're addressed to a specific church in a real place in the first century of real stuff happening. Uh, so the first one's to Ephesus, then to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, and so on and so forth. And they're always from a specific person. Always Jesus, but the way that Jesus is introduced is always in a different way. These are the words of him who. And the way that he is then introduced in each letter is both connected to uh, something from the vision of Revelation 1 that is particularly pertinent to those people in that time and in that place. So it's drawing something from that grand vision last week and saying, this is what you guys need to see in Ephesus about Jesus. This is who you need to know who he is and what he's like. And then you've got the main part of the letter, the kind of the meat of it, if you like, which kind of has three things in it. And, and really, it's Jesus addressing their particular situation and giving them some instruction into that. He always says, I know you. I know you. We'll come back to that in a moment. I know what you're experiencing. He then encourages them, most often in the good that he sees. And then he also challenges them for their sin and where he sees weakness and failings in them. And he calls them to change. That's kind of the meat of the letter. And then all of the letters close out with that call. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then also a promise of a reward for those who heed his words and are victorious. And that promise of the reward at the end is always taken from the end of Revelation, chapters 19 to 22. Which kind of, when we get there, we'll see the, the victory of God's people and, 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 and the joy of that. And so... Jesus kind of borrows some of that imagery and brings it into the end of each of these letters as well, seeing what that particular church and that particular place needs to see about the final victory they have in Christ. And so just seeing that structure tells us that these letters are very connected to the rest of the book of Revelation and we lose something when so often we do, we kind of just lift them out and study them in great depth and detail by themselves without seeing them in the flow of the book. See, these letters show us the state and the experience of the church at the time as Revelation was written. And so the visions that are going to follow um, in the coming weeks is going to get really, really interesting. Particularly chapters 6 through 16. Those visions are particularly applied to this church in this context at this time. And they speak into the particular struggles and issues that they have. And we need to remember that when we work through them. Because it will help us to relate the meaning of those things. What it meant to them then. And then we can see what it means to us now. So that, that, that's a few kind of overview, kind of introductory thoughts to these letters. We're going to see three big things. I'm not going to be able to go through all of the detail because um, we're, we're, we're kind of on this flyby overview. So we're going to be moving quite quickly through Revelation. So we have to leave some questions there. But these three big ideas from these two chapters, these, uh, these letters. The first one is this. Jesus' love for his church. The second one is his call on us to live faithfully for him. And the third one is our promised reward. So firstly, the love of Jesus for his church. Now this is quite something, isn't it? Given the vision of Jesus last week, Revelation 1, how beautiful he is, how impressive, how mighty and and great he is. And then we start to read about his church and it's in a bit of a state. It's a little bit ragged and ugly and not so great. It's kind of the beauty and the beast story here. Uh, And yet, as this risen and this reigning Christ speaks directly and specifically to his church, 
He does so not only with uh, great authority, but he does so with deep grace and deep love. And and as I said, the first thing he says, uh, really, in, in, in the meat of each letter, he says, I know you. I know you. To each of these churches, I know your deeds, verse 2 of chapter 2. I know your afflictions and your poverty, verse 9 of chapter 2. I know where you live, verse 13 of chapter 2. I know your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, verse 19 of chapter 2. In fact, he knows them. He knows their situation so well. He knows what's going on in their lives, in and around them, that he uses all of this kind of hyper-local imagery as he writes to them. And he kind of uses these reference points that would be so familiar to them in their lives to communicate to them. So Philadelphia, the, um, the sick church, I think, um, they, they have earthquakes there. So when he writes them, he writes them about them standing firm in, in their faith and in him. Laodicea, the last letter, is kind of halfway between these hot springs and the sea. So the river water where they are is kind of tepid and lukewarm. So when he writes them, he talks about them being lukewarm in their faith. He's using this local imagery and stuff that they'll be able to relate to. This is the one who stands amongst and with the lampstands. This is the one who knows his people, who knows his church, knows their situation. He holds the stars representing um, the representatives of the church in his hands. I know you, he says. I know you. It may feel to you like Jesus has forgotten you. In fact, I know that some of you feel like that today. He's forgotten my situation. But no, he knows you. He knows us. He knows your chronic pain. He knows your difficult boss. He knows the relationship where there's such temptation for you. He knows your financial needs. He knows your difficult family relationships. He knows your loneliness. He knows your secret pains. He knows your trials. He knows your doubts and your fears and your questions. He knows your grief. He knows where you live. And he knows how that impacts your relationship with your family and your friends and your future for your kids and all sorts of things. He knows you. And he knows us. He knows our story. He knows where we are. He knows our weaknesses and our frailties. He knows our pressures and our temptations as a church. He sees and he knows. And he not only knows... But as he writes to us, he writes these words of encouragement out of his grace. See, Christ is not shy in encouraging his people. Do you see that? Read through these letters and you'll see it. He's not shy in affirming the good he sees at work in them. To the Ephesians, he commends their love for truth. In Smyrna, he he, he encourages them in the spiritual riches that these very physically poor Christians have. In Pergamon, where Satan has his throne, he says. Imagine living in a place where Satan has his throne. He encourages them because they're staying faithful to him. In Philadelphia, he says, I know you have little strength, but you have endured patiently. He encourages. In fact, for Smyrna and Philadelphia, he pretty much only has positive and encouraging things to say to them. No massive rebuke or, or smackdown. No, he, he just wants to strengthen them. He wants to help them to stay faithful through the trial that he says is going to come to them and the difficulties they're going to face. Do you imagine that Jesus could ever encourage you? Do you imagine he ever would? Could you ever imagine him saying something kind or generous to you? 
Or have we so forgotten his great love for us? Have we so got used to listening to the accuser in our ears all the time that we put in the mouth of Jesus words of condemnation? That we put in his mouth words of rejection that do not belong there and do not come from him? Jesus encourages his people. Now these churches are messed up. Most of them are pretty messed up. We can be pretty messed up. And yet he comes and says, I know you. And I want to encourage you in these things. We could do well to learn from that and how we speak to one another, couldn't we? And what words we have for one another. He knows them. He encourages them. He knows you. He encourages you. And he also knows just what you need. And here's the really important thing. He is that for you. To those in Smyrna, they're about to face persecution even to the point of death. He says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came to life again. You can go to death for me, it's okay. To those in Pergamum who have stood for the truth of of Christ and his word against the satanic attack around them. But now they're wavering because these false beliefs are starting to besiege the church from within. Jesus says, I am the one who has the sharp double-edged sword of God's word and God's truth in my mouth. To those in Laodicea who are lukewarm spiritually because of the riches of the world that have so won and captivated their hearts. He says, I'm the ruler of all creation. I'm over all things. I'm sat on the throne. In the same way, Jesus knows you. He is just what you need. In fact, there's this um, really familiar verse in in chapter 3, verse 20. Do, Do look at it. Now this verse is to Christians who have gone tepid in their spiritual life. We often use it to, to people who aren't yet Christians and kind of encouraging them to become Christians, but that's not, that's not who it's originally addressed to. It's the Christians who have gone tepid in their spiritual life. Chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, Jesus wants friendship. He wants fellowship again with Christians who have start to push him out and push him to the side. Christians who have a long time since sat down with him and just been a friend with him, just loved and worshipped him, or just let him speak to them. He, he wants Christians whose hearts have been grabbed by other things to have their heart captivated by him again. To sit with them and, you know, that, that image of just eating with them and enjoying one another's company. He's standing at the door of your heart and he is knocking. He is eager just to be with you. To be for you, to spend some time with you, to be friends. That's a message to Christians. Jesus knows our needs. Jesus can meet our needs. I don't want to say this glibly, but it is true. In your loneliness, he is the faithful friend. In your deep pain, he can be your strength. When you don't know if you can go on, he can help you endure. 
When you're filled with doubts and questions, he's the truth that you need. When darkness seems just overwhelming, he is the light of the world that shines in the darkness. And the darkness is not overcoming. Jesus knows. Jesus encourages. Jesus is just what we need. And all of this is born of his fierce and his unrelenting love for his people. When we get further through Revelation, we're going to see that we as his people are described as his bride. Those who he loves, those who, in whom he delights, those who are his joy, those who he has given himself to and for. Will you just rest for a moment, for this moment, will you just believe him? And just rest in his perfect love for you. A love that knows you and a love that gets you and a love that will never, ever let you go. This is the love of Jesus for his people, for his church. And it's written right through these letters. And it's out of that great love that he also shares his deep concern. So here's the second thing we see in these letters. It's a call to live faithfully for the coming king. So he knows the spiritual state of of his church and and he loves her and so he is concerned for it. And and here we see the driving concern through these mini letters is the main thing we're to do in response to reading Revelation is to live faithfully for the coming king. You see, the pressure that comes on Christians to give up and and bear on Christ is great. Uh, and, And we've seen in Revelation already, it comes in two main forms, the direct opposition, the direct um, um. Persecution, opposition of the world to Christ's kingdom. And at the same time being pulled into the ways of thinking and living that reflect uh, the life of the world and not the, 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 the life of Christ. So, so in the first century, with the Christians under the, the Roman Empire, they, they were being pounded with one clenched fist into the ground. And then the other was that inviting, beckoning hand gesture. Come and join us. Get, in, get stuck into all that is good in life under the empire. Come on, Christians, just be like us. And so in these letters, we start to see more clearly what that really looked like in practice for them. The, per- the persecution was direct and obvious. It came from uh, several different places. In Smyrna, the Jews were given the Christians a hard time and, and more was coming. Uh, and we read that great suffering, including being imprisoned for a time, was heading their way. Pergamon was full of um, religious pluralism, lots of different faiths and beliefs. And, and, but it's that kind of pluralism, as it so often does, that leads to intolerance of diversity of belief. And so Antipas has already been killed by extremists for his faith in Christ. And, uh, and um, probably because he stood up in some way to the, kind of the cult of the Roman Empire and didn't go along with things and stood out a little bit. And so he's been killed. In Philadelphia, they're enduring patiently, though they're feeling weak in the face of opposition. And you see, the message of Christ to his people as they face that kind of direct opposition and persecution and belittling and everything else, it's just repeated through these letters over and over. It's endure patiently, persevere, don't grow weary, hold fast, be faithful even to the point of death. Hold on to what you have, continue walking with me, stand firm. That's often really all that needs to be said, all we need to hear when we're having a hard time for our faith. 
You know, your family's giving you a hard time for your weird beliefs or your weird life decisions based out of them. Or your neighbours avoid you like the plague. Or the media derides anyone who could have the views that, that you tend to hold. Hang in there. Keep going. Stand firm. Don't grow weary. Stay faithful until Christ comes. It'll be worth it in the end. That, that's really the main thing that needs to be said in that kind of context. The message is very different to the second pressure, the second struggle, that, that seduction, that, that, that drawing in, that temptation to compromise, which looks like two things, to compromise in our beliefs or our teaching, or, or on the other hand, to compromise in, in our lifestyle. You see, several of these churches here are putting up with all kinds of dangerous and false teachings. The teachings of the Nicolaitans and Balaam and Jezebel and even Satan's so-called deep secrets. And, and it doesn't particularly matter for, for the person of today what all these different teachings are, but they're, they're teachings that are not true and they're leading them into a cocktail of sexual immorality and idolatry and, and syncretism with pagan worship and Jewish beliefs and kind of mixing in emperor worship with following Jesus. Because the only way to get ahead in society at that time is to go along with things. There's this massive lure and this massive pressure on the Christians to not be so negative about stuff that everyone else is doing. Everyone else says it's okay and it's just the way things are. All of these approved activities that everyone's involved in. Christians, stop making such a big deal out of this stuff. Stop, stop standing out so much. Just lighten up a bit. Go with the flow. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But listen, that's always the way it goes. Believing things that are not true or allowing things that are not true to be taught within the church, things that don't reflect God's word, it always leads to lifestyles that ultimately are unfaithful to Christ. We change things up here and it flows down into how we live our lives. Or, or maybe our lives can just be grabbed by the love of money. And stuff that pulls so strongly on our heart and more strongly than Christ does. That's what was going on in Laodicea. And so little by little, year by year, new gadget and product and house and car by new gadget, product, house and car. We just go off the boil. It's interesting that the two churches out of the seven here that don't have a massive rebuke are the two that are the poorest churches, physically speaking. They've got the least going for them. They're the ones that Christ most commends. They're the most spiritually rich and healthy. What does faithfulness to Christ look like as we find our hearts and we find ourselves being drawn into the beliefs and the practices that just so nicely line up with the world and the culture around us? Where we find ourselves drawn to just going with the flow of the culture? Well, Christ calls us to this. He calls us to repent. He calls us to turn back and, and turn back to him and to seek his will. Verse 19 of chapter 3, Jesus says, Those who I love, I rebuke and I discipline. This is a function of his love. That he calls his church back to him. He calls his church in repentance to turn to him again. And sometimes he does so, as in some of these letters, with pretty severe warnings. And yet it's because the danger is great. 
again and again he says here the things that he holds against his churches and he calls them and he calls us to repent. When we're at risk of heading off or we are heading off in a direction of unfaithfulness to him, he calls us back like the good shepherds. And you know, part of that active repentance for us as a church is not allowing these things to continue within the church. Those who would either teach untruths and lead people astray, or those who lead others astray into living lives of unfaithfulness to Christ. They are to be challenged and they are to be called back to faithfulness to Christ. It's something we've forgotten in the church, in this country, in this day and age. It's so important. There is this great pressure in the world, not only on the lives of individual Christians, I know you feel it, but also on the church to compromise in beliefs and in how we live. Here Jesus calls us and he encourages us to live faithfully for him. Hold the line when you're opposed and given a hard time and when you feel yourself wandering and prone to wander, Lord I feel it, when you feel that, to turn back to come to him, to return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Really, this is an invitation to fellowship with him. To enjoy him in relationship with him. To enjoy the one who loves us so dearly. Whose love is a jealous love for the heart of his bride. And the one who desires us to be all, um, to, to be all that he desires us to be. See, this is the third thing. This is the promise that we will be that in the end. Third thing is a promised reward in victory. It's much briefer to finish. Each mini letter finishes with this beautiful promise of this great reward for those who heed what Christ says and who are victorious in him. And as I said earlier, these promises are not only intimately connected to what's going on in their situation, but they're also drawn from the, the, from the end of uh, Revelation, the final victory of, of Christ's people. So, so in Smyrna, those who, um, who may die for their witness of Christ, the promise they won't be hurt at all by the second death. Those in Philadelphia who feel shaky uh, in their faith, the place of earthquakes, will be established, we're told, as strong pillars in the temple of God in, in the new Jerusalem and the new world to come. Those in Laodicea whose hearts have gone lukewarm spiritually, have they turned to, um, as they've turned away to, to, to worldly riches, as they turn back away from the world's riches to Christ and to fellowship with him and to delight in him and communion with him, he promises that they will reign with him on his throne. They're going to inherit the world. They're going to have everything in Christ. These are these beautiful, these textured, these, these personal promises of life. This, this life eternal that is good in its fullness for those who are Christ. And these promises are given to every single one of these churches. No matter how messed up they are. If only they will heed his words. Repent and turn and have victory in him. As, as we look at church whether it's the Gate Church or we look at the church more broadly in the UK today, and as we form our view on it and how we relate to it and what we think and feel about it, one important thing needs to be kept in mind, at least one important thing. It is not yet what it one day will be. 
we are not yet what we one day will surely be. Church is messed up. If you're here for the first time or looking into this church, this church is messed up. It's helpful for you to hear that from the front. Of course it is. It's filled with recovering sinners. How else could it be? We've got all sorts of issues to work through. And at times our faithfulness to Christ is faltering. And yet our future is much brighter than our past. Because the the one who knows us and the one who loves us and the one who gave himself for us is the one who promises us great things in the future, in the final victory we have in him. And so it's not on us. It's on him. And therefore, we endure. Therefore, we seek to always to return to living faithfully for him in the hope of when he comes, it will all be made well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your knowledge and your love and your grace. We praise you for your word of encouragement, but also your word of rebuke and correction. You are the Lord of your church. You are in charge of us. You are the only perfect one, without any sin. Help us to listen to you, to be encouraged and spurred on and strengthened where we need that, and to be corrected and trained and to be turning around where we need that. And help us to always have the hope of that final victory. We look forward to when you come, making all things good and all things new. Keep us faithful until that day, we pray. Amen.